The reading this morning, the reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians um, 3, 18 through 20 and 4, 8 through 16. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Vicki. I'm going to talk like you in the new heavens and the new earth, I think. I love it. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here this morning as we uh, head straight away to Christmas. Uh, thanks for being here on this uh, cold morning to celebrate with us. We, during this Advent season, have been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to continue to do so this morning, talking about the upside-downness of Christmas, because really the whole idea is upside-down, isn't it? God in heaven coming to earth, God being born, God coming down, right? It's, it's unique among the religions of the world. And yet, then when you start to read the stories, everything about the event itself is upside down. When God came, how did he come? Not as a conquering hero, but as a baby, a fugitive, right? A carpenter, the holy, omnipresent, omnipotent, sovereign Lord of heaven, wielding a hammer, (laughs) not a sword, not a scepter. Think about the place where he was born, in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Have you ever thought, why did the wise men have to go to Jerusalem first in search of Jesus before they found out from the people in Jerusalem to go on to Bethlehem. Well, they were looking for a king, and where are kings born? In palaces, of course, not in barns. Think about the guests who attended his birth. Who did God invite to welcome his son into the world? Not the dignitaries and the noblemen, but the shepherds, the riffraff, the Uncle Eddies of the world, I've said, right? Christmas vacation. The Uncle Eddies. That's who gets invited. I mean, everything, everything uh, about this event that we celebrate in the next few days is, is radically upside down. There's irony that is hard to cut through. And so if you're a Christian, that is, if the Christmas story is at the center of your self-understanding and mission, then you will live an upside-down life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what this passage 
in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 is about. Paul expects, if you look down there at the end of, the, of, the chapter, of chapter 4, around verse 14, he expects that what he says in these verses is going to be hard for his readers to hear. He tells them, I'm not, I'm not doing this to shame you. I'm encouraging you. I'm trying to admonish you. You're, I'm trying to change the way you think about your life. So he knows it's going to be hard. And if we take this passage seriously this morning, it should be hard for us as well. Uh, and so I'm coming to you knowing this is going to be hard. It's hard for me to have to talk about these things. And I hope, this is going to sound funny, I hope it's kind of hard for you to listen and to hear it. And it should challenge us. Now, three things this morning from this passage that I want to talk about as we talk about what it means to live an upside-down life, okay? Just, just the three points of the outline that I've given you. I want you to see gospel living based upon the gospel reality uh, through gospel power. So those are the three things. Gospel living, gospel reality, gospel power, the three points of the outline on the, on the back of the scripture passage that, that we just read. Uh, beginning just with the, what do I mean by gospel living? What do I mean by uh, that our lives, because of the upside downness of Christmas, our lives should appear, at least to the world, in some sense to be upside down, okay? Paul is writing and he's saying there's a distinctively Christian way of life that is at odds with the prevailing cultural norms and behaviors. And therefore, a Christian, or to be a Christian, you have to experience a conversion, Now, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 3, Paul says, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Now, let me explain what he means by that phrase. Paul is saying that we have to embrace a countercultural, counterintuitive lifestyle in obedience to God's commands that to an unbelieving world will look moronic. That word foolishness means it's moron. Right? Biblical warrant to call people morons. There you go, right? It's moronic. We have to become fools, Paul says, in the eyes of the world in order to be truly wise. But there, there has to be a break. There, I mean, to be a Christian means there's a time where there's a break with the conventions of the culture and an embracing of the upside-downness of discipleship. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian, has written about the story of Abraham. Uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12 and and onward. Uh, Abraham being the archetypal conversion experience. Abraham, if you remember the story, if you're you're a Christian or if you've been around the church, Abraham was this man who was called by God to leave his father's house, to leave his father's country, to come out of his father's house and country in order to go on a journey of faith toward this land that God had promised him where he was going to bless him and give him children and make him a great nation. But See, in the story, there had to be a break that led to an alternate way of living. And and an upside-down lifestyle of faith. And so we read in Hebrews that Abraham left. And when he left, he didn't even really know where he was going. Now, Miroslav Volf sees this, this, this archetypal conversion experience in Abraham. And he says, here's what he writes to American Christians. He, he teaches at a school here in America. He says, Christians can never, first of all, be Americans and then Christians. He says, at the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the God of all cultures. A response to a call from God that that entails the rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances. And then he makes this statement. He says, departure is part and parcel of Christian identity. 
Now, what he means is this. He means that a Christian is a person who's experienced this kind of departure, this conversion, this break with the social conventions and norms. And consequently, consequently, he lives a very different life than the people around him. He's at odds with the culture, right? A Christian is a person who shouldn't feel at home in the world. Because Christianity without repentance isn't Christianity. There has to be a conversion that results in a radically different way of life, a rearrangement of all of your priorities and allegiances that is at odds with the prevailing cultural norms and behaviors. And this is exactly what Paul's writing about. Look in chapter 4. His own experience mirrors what he's calling the Corinthians to. He says in verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. See, Paul says this has happened. I've experienced this. And he uses a metaphor that would have been very uh, well known in his day, but not so much in ours. The Greek word translated spectacle there is a word, literally it's theatron or theater or show, which referred to a particular event. Uh, When Roman generals would return home after a battle or a war in triumph, they were greeted with a grand parade that would go throughout the streets of Rome. And the conqueror would ride in a chariot near the front, and then behind him would come the dignitaries and, um, and the army, and then last of all, at the very end of the procession, would be the enemy captives who were taken in the battle, who would be dragged through the streets to be mocked as defeated foes, and then be killed in the arena as sport. <laughs> Paul says, that's what it feels like to be an apostle. See, when the world laid eyes upon the apostles, they derided them as defeated foes because of their sufferings. And Paul lists the kinds of things that were true of his life. Look, he goes on in verse 10. We are weak. We are in disrepute, he says. We hunger. We thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted. We are homeless. And then, I mean, as if it could get any worse, he says, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. That's pretty strong words. And really, it's just the beginning. In in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, there's a much longer list, but that's enough for us, right? (laughs) I mean, nobody looks at that list. Look at it again. I mean, look at that list. Nobody looks at that list and think, wow, there's somebody that's a success, right? I mean, nobody, nobody looks at the list of things Paul mentions there and says, you know, that's a person God loves. No, they think, what a fool. What a waste. None of that. Thank you very much. And so we have to wrestle with this, and we have to ask a question. And I think the question that we really have to ask of ourselves is just this. Did Paul assume that his experience was normative for all Christians? In other words, is this just a feature of his apostleship, or is this something that this this dynamic of this upside-downness, this becoming fools for Christ, is this something that everybody who sets out to believe in Jesus and follow him should expect to experience. In studying the text, I would have to answer emphatically, yes. Paul assumed that his experience was not only an apostolic thing, but it was normative for all Christians for a couple of reasons. Okay, look at verse 10. And in verse 10, he begins to draw a contrast between his way of life, foolishness, which is actually wisdom, 
in the Corinthians way of life, which is wisdom that is actually foolishness. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in high honor, but we are in uh, disrepute. And if you're if you're um, if you're the simple minded kind like me, you might have missed the fact that Paul is being sarcastic. Right. This is sarcasm, which I know will comfort some of you. See, sarcasm. I, I, I repent of my of my wrongness. Sarcasm can be helpful. Right. I guess Paul's doing it right here. Okay? And if I were honest, I would have to admit that for most of us in this room, this should hit home because our lives resemble the Corinthians far more than Paul. We selfishly want the riches. We want, we want it to be easy. We want others to look at us and admire us. We have an allergy to Paul's Christianity, and that's a problem because we need to be converted to Paul's gospel. He expects that this would be true of every single one of us in the room. And if that's not enough evidence, there's this explicit statement down in verse 16 where he says to the Corinthians, be imitators of me, change, and become like me. Scum of the earth, right? The refuse of the world. And you see, the hard part is in this is, you know, okay, well, what does that look like? See, that's the question. Well, great. What are you telling me I have to do? And that's when we, uh, when the pastors get together on Wednesday that are preaching on this text, we end up talking about those kinds of things in our preaching meetings because it's just hard to know how to go beyond and start to give us specific applications of what Paul means here because, there, see, there's temptations on either side. On the one side, we can think Paul's being a drama queen and that we need to temper what he's saying, right? It surely isn't as radical as he sounds. He doesn't mean, he doesn't mean for us to do that. But then the other problem is, is we can become legalistic and we can say this means this, and nothing short of this counts whatever this is. So we need, see, we need wisdom. But let me give you one example of what I think, how we might begin to make steps in moving towards Paul's version of Christianity that we need to be converted to. Uh, Very appropriate at this time of the year, I think. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus as saying, and you're going to know this phrase, it is, be- it is better or it is more blessed to give than what? Than to receive. Okay? And the word blessed there means happiness or wholeness. I mean, it's the good life. And so what, 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 Jesus is, what Paul is quoting Jesus is saying is this, that a life of generosity towards others, rather than a life of personal consumption and greed, is where you find the most joy and purpose and meaning. Right? If you want to know how countercultural that is, Try to take that, try to take the next three days and work that truth into your kids' hearts. Right? No Christmas presents this year. It's better to give than to receive. They're going to look at you like, no, thank you. Right? I mean, it, it is a, when you stop and you really sit on that one phrase and you begin to think out the implications, Paul says, a life of, or Jesus says, a life of generosity towards others rather than a life of personal consumption and greed is where you find the most joy and purpose and meaning. So, Canaan, Isaac, Abby, and Sarah, you know, this year we've decided there's more joy in getting no Christmas presents than there are in getting Christmas presents. I don't, I don't like that, Mom, Mom. Right? I don't like... See, this, so this is, this, is, this is radically upside down. This is gospel wisdom. 
that looks like foolishness to the world. So the gospel roadmap to joy. Let's just put let's put feet on that a little bit. Put the needs of others ahead of your own. Serve. Don't insist on being served. Right. Whatever situation you're in, ask this. How is this an opportunity for me to love? Not what do I get out of this? Right. It's better to give than to receive. Go without so that others might have. Go last so that others might go first. Have less so that others can have more. Lose so that others might win or die so that others might live. See, to be a Christian means you're converted to this way of life. You change. You live differently. You consciously turn away from a selfish way of life, a life of consumption and greed, and embrace a life of radical generosity. And if you live your life according to the wisdom of God in Acts 20, 35, that it is better to give than to receive, to the extent that Paul did, you will be thought a fool. People will look at you and say, that is dumb. You're going to get taken advantage of. It's not going to do any good. You're going to lose the heart of your kids, whatever it might be, however it might, you know. And that's when you know. See, that's when, when people start to come to you and say, you know, I'm just not sure. That just doesn't seem right to me. That's when you know the gospel's becoming a living reality in your life. So there's this upside down gospel living that we have to become fools in order to become truly wise. Okay, now remember what we said about this word wisdom. Wisdom means being in touch with reality. And so um, a, a life of wisdom is a life that is in touch with reality. And that's the second thing I want you to see from the, Paul's words here. That the problem with the Corinthians is that they're not in touch with reality. So secondly, there's not only gospel living, but there's the gospel reality. Look at his words again there, the apostles' words in verse 8 of chapter 4. He, again, for some of you this is comforting, he is mocking them. Already, and, and Vicky did it, did you hear Vicky? Vicky did it great. I mean, she, she caught it, what he, what he did. You know, already you've become rich? Already you, you have all that you want? Without us you've become kings? Oh, would that you would... You know, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I mean, he's just, he's just laying it on. But what's it mean? So he says, already you have what you want. That entire phrase is really one word in the Greek. It's a participle that refers to food. It means something like, you've had your fill. You know, you have all that you could ever want. He says, already you've become rich. Already you've become kings. And that's not necessarily material wealth and political power. The Corinthians felt as if they'd arrived. They were living the blessed life. But according to Paul... Problem was, is they weren't in touch with reality. See, there's a strain teaching in the church today that says if you believe in Jesus, you will become successful and prosperous. And the idea is based upon Old Testament passages, particularly in the prophets, where God talks about what it would be like when the Messiah, the long-awaited king, would come and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth, that the hills would flow with wine, that God's blessing favor would be upon his people, that there would be no more sickness, that everything would be wonderful all the time. And according to this doctrine, what you need to do to advance spiritually is to claim these promises really through what amounts to the power of positive thinking and will them into existence in your life. And this is, this is the, the um, false reality, the bad theology the Corinthians have fallen into. And the important word in verse 8 and following is that word already. You see, Paul says, you already have what you want. You already have become rich. You're already kings and queens. See, Paul doesn't object to the idea that we will one day have all of these things. First Peter says, 
There's an inheritance in heaven that is waiting for us, that is being kept, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. John, in his revelation, says that Jesus has died to make us a kingdom of priests, that we will, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then in the new heavens and the new earth, you will sit upon a throne as kings and rule with Christ over the universe. Isn't that amazing? Paul's not objecting to any of that. Just not yet. He's saying that the Corinthians are out of touch with reality because they're claiming that their wealth and their influence and their power were the proof of the genuineness of their faith in Jesus and the sign of God's blessing on their lives. And Paul, the problem is, is Paul's claiming the exact opposite. Paul's saying that the authentication of his apostleship is not wealth and power, it's suffering. So what Paul's saying is, yes, glory. Later. See? A throne, yes. Later. But for now, suffering. Two different views of reality. See, in Revelation 21, John sees a new heavens and a new earth. And here's how he describes it. It's absolutely beautiful. He says, God will dwell with men. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. And the Corinthians are are reading that passage and they're saying, yes, this is ours now. This is ours right now. And Paul says, no, 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 not yet. That's the Corinthians' unreality. So what is reality then? And I use the word, if you see the outline, I use the word eschatology for this part of the sermon. And that is because the mistake the Corinthians made had to do with how salvation was going to come through Jesus Christ as it plays out towards the end of the uh, the age as we know it. Reality is, and I'm going to give you a theological... See, we've got to think a little bit here, okay? This is Presbyterian Church. We do this around here sometimes, okay? Mark that one out. You have to think. I mean, in Christianity, you have to think. And here's, a, and here's a category that I want to give you that we really have to put in our brain and start to think through. It's what theologians call the already and the not yet. Okay? Now, what's that mean? The already and the not yet. Okay. By the already, we mean that the life of the future, the promise of heaven, is pushing back into the present in Jesus Christ, and we can enter into it and experience it now. Jesus' message in the Gospels is very clear. The kingdom of heaven is here, now, present reality. And when you become a Christian, you enter into this new reality. But not fully. See? There's a not yet aspect also. The kingdom is here, but not fully here. Salvation has come, but we're still waiting for it to extend out far as the curse is found, to quote Wesley's famous phrase, right? Now, this is hard, so let me give you a couple of um, illustrations. People have, people have used a few illustrations to kind of try to help people with this. Uh, think about the difference between being pregnant and, and the birth of a child, right? At some point in the pregnancy, you can go to the doctor and you can see the baby. You can put a stethoscope on the mother, mommy's belly and you can hear the baby. The mom can feel the baby moving around and even hiccuping in her womb. There's a baby, right? But the baby's not here yet. The baby's still coming. Okay? So there's an already and there's a not yet. 
the, the most famous illustration of this was by um, a German theologian who talked about the already and the not yet in the terms of the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. And what historians say is that D-Day uh, was the day where the war was decided. Once we landed in Normandy, it was just a matter of time. The outcome was sure, but there were still battles to be fought. Right? D-Day signaled the end of, it, the, end of the war, but there was still a lot of work to do uh, to, to get it done. We still had to round up the enemy. We still had to fight uh, to vanquish the foe. See, and so this is the eschatological tension we live in. When Jesus cries, rang out, into the night in Bethlehem, it was the signal of the dawning of a new world, that nothing would ever be the same. That the kingdom of God had come, it was already here. But in his death and resurrection and the promise of his return, we were reminded that there is something more that is coming that is not yet. And if you, and if, I, if we don't hold both of those realities in tension, Paul's saying, we, like the Corinthians, we won't be wise, we won't be in touch with reality. Because the problem with the Corinthians is the Corinthians had the already with no not yet. And it's the same error as the modern, what, what people have called the health and wealth gospel movement, which is really based upon good biblical teaching. It's just not through the, the proper grid. It's not through the proper, you know, grid of reality. Right? To point people to all the promises of God, but not through this tension, right? Paul says if you live as if there's nothing more coming, you're not in touch with reality. You'll be naive about sin. You'll be overly optimistic about your life. You'll, um, which will make you prone to discouragement when things go wrong, right? Because if you have high expectations, then when life never meets like prom, senior prom, right? Nobody's senior prom has ever lived up to the expectations. Never. Maybe yours did. Mine did not. Okay? Wow. I can't, and it just never... So, so because you have such high expectations, life never seems to meet your expectations, so you live your entire life discouraged. And feeling like you're doing something wrong, and... Things shouldn't be this way, right? It will always feel to you like God is over-promising and under-delivering because your expectations are too high. And you'll go through life thinking that if it's hard, it means you're doing something wrong. That's unwise because it's not in touch with reality. If it's never hard, that's when you know you're doing something wrong. And that's Paul's concern for the Corinthians, that their approach to life is based upon unreality, not Reality. They're not taking into account that the fall, that the curse has not been lifted yet, that we're not home yet. We need Jesus to come again and make all things new. But you see, it's also possible to live in the not yet with no already. Now, this isn't so much what Paul's concerned about in this text, but it bears saying that if you live as Jesus's life, death, and resurrection didn't change things much, then you're not in touch with reality then either. You'll be cynical and overly pessimistic. You'll give up on people too easily. See, you can have your expectations too high, but you can also have your expectations too low. And that's unwise too, because it's not in touch with reality. Jesus is in heaven. We're waiting for him to return, but the Spirit is here, powerfully working in us and in our world to make all things new. And we have access to all that God has promised us. In the present. Now does it sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth? Good. We're starting to make sense of these things then. But you see living in this tension. Between the already and the not yet. Is what accounts for how upside down Christianity can feel. It accounts for the feel. Of the life of faith. I feel weak. But in reality I'm strong. Right? I feel silly. I feel out of place. I feel like I don't fit in. 
like something's wrong with me, but it's not that there's something wrong with me. It's that there's something wrong with the world. And it's that tension that explains that feel. Now, let's just be honest, okay? This is hard. I mean, this is, this is hard, what Paul is saying here, even to make sense, because we have such an allergy to this sort of thing in our culture. It's hard. It goes against every selfish impulse of our hearts. And so where do we find the power? Where do we find the power we need to begin to, to, to chip away at this and, and start to make progress towards what Paul's calling us to? And that's why we need the cross, because the cross is important, because it is both the example and the power we need. Now, let me explain that, and then I'm done. We're going to come to the Lord's table, okay? The cross is the example. Here's what I mean. Go back to the imagery Paul uses to describe his apostleship, that God has made him a spectacle, right? Remember, like, the defeated, the defeated armies that were being dragged through the streets of Rome when the Roman army came into the city after a military victory? That's what it felt like to Paul in his sufferings, that he had lost, that he had been conquered, that everybody else was going on without him, that he was being left behind. And that's what the people around him looking on at his sufferings felt too. However, see, however, Paul wasn't defeated at all. There's a great irony. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul goes on to write, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. It's the same metaphor. And this is the struggle of Paul. You can just feel, you can feel Paul's struggle here. It's hard for Paul. He suffered. He struggled. And he was tempted to think of himself as a defeated foe at the very end of the procession when in reality, even in his pain and struggle and awkwardness and weakness through Jesus Christ, he was actually the conquering hero. I don't think, I don't think that hit home. It didn't feel from up here that it did. Right? So I'm going to keep praying and keep saying it. Paul, in his struggle with sin, in his weakness, in his pain, in his sufferings, he felt like the defeated foe. But the promise of the gospel was that in Christ Jesus, he actually was processing through the city as the conquering hero. What appeared to the world as defeat and what appeared to the apostle as defeat was actually triumph. That was the foolishness of God. That was actually wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God that it was stronger than man's strength. And see, the reason Paul could say we've become the scum of the world, the refuse of all things in one breath, and in the next say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us is because of what he knew about the cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate irony. Pilate's soldiers dressed Jesus in a purple robe and crowned him with a crown of thorns. He hung... On the cross, and above him they nailed a plaque which proclaimed him the king of the Jews. And they did all of this to mock him and make a, make a spectacle of him, not having the slightest idea of the truth of what they were doing and saying. Because you see, the irony was, he was indeed the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but their king too. And in his sufferings, he was the conquering hero, not the one being conquered. See, on the cross, Jesus appeared weak. But in reality, he was strong. He looked to the eye to be ugly and yet was beautiful. He hung there naked, shamed. Yet he told his disciples in the days leading up to his crucifixion that it was the moment of his greatest glory. On the cross, Jesus seemed to be losing when in fact he was winning. His death felt like the end when in reality it was only the beginning. I could keep going. We could be here all day. You see what I'm doing? 
So the cross is the example, it's the pattern for all of the Christian life. It helps us make sense of why it feels, why the life of faith feels the way it does. But the cross is not only the pattern, it's also the power. It's the power we need. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm really grateful for the glimpse of Paul's struggle that we get in these verses. You can just feel him grasping for faith because it's hard. Listen, and I, I live this on a daily basis. It's hard to lose in the game of life and watch others win. Right? It's hard, it's hard to be weak when it feels like everybody else around you is strong. It's hard to feel silly when from all appearances everybody else has their act together. It's hard not it's, it's hard not to abandon the way of the cross and live your life instead according to the wisdom of this world. And so how do we resist this temptation? To walk away from Paul's way of life and embrace Corinthian Christianity. And the key, I think, is found in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, which we read for a call to worship, which is re-sung almost word for word by Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. So if you want to look in your worship folders... Just really, really quickly, I want to look a little more carefully at Hannah's understanding of what God does in salvation and the reversal that it brings. Because here's what Hannah sings. You can see it there. She sings. And this is talking about the salvation of the Lord. The, ba- the, the bows of the mighty are broken, she sings, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven children, but... She who has many children is forlorn. The Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. See, Hannah goes on to sing that this is what the Lord God will do through his king. And so in Luke 1, when the true king was born, Mary takes up the song again and she sings in Luke 1.52, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. And what both... Hannah and Mary are saying is that in Jesus Christ, God is reordering the entire cosmos. He is turning it upside down or right side up, you might say. And so how do you take up your cross and follow Jesus into weakness and foolishness? You have to be absolutely convinced that God will come to you in your weakness and make you strong. That he will fill you when you're hungry. That he will meet you in your barrenness, and make you fruitful. The power of the gospel in your life is the promise of the gospel, which is this, that the humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. And you can be sure of that. You can be 100% sure that God will exalt the humble, that he will come to you in your need and raise you up, that he will come to you in your weakness and make you strong. And the reason you can be 100% sure that God will do that work is because of what we learn at Christmas. Think about Christmas. Think about the cross. What do you learn? See, at Christmas and at the cross, we learn that the exalted was humble so that the humble might be exalted. That God Most High came down so that the needy sitting on the ash heap of sorrow and shame might be lifted up. In Philippians 2, we're told that God raised Jesus up and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But before he could be exalted, he had to first become nothing. And in fact, what we learn there in Philippians 2 is that it was because Jesus had all authority and power and beauty, and yet he laid it aside for the love of the Father and his people that God gave him the name that is above every name. It's because he did that that he was exalted. 
And that means for us to, before we gain a crown, this is what the Corinthians got wrong. Before we gain a crown, we must first take a cross. Before we can become kings and come into our inheritance, we must first go without and live a life of love for the sake of God and his glory. Exaltation always follows humiliation. And to think that I could skip the becoming nothing part and go straight to all the good stuff is ridiculous. Paul won't let me do it. This supper won't let me do it either. Which is why it's so great that we get to celebrate it this morning. Because here is where we are formed as a people with an alternate way of life. Not the wisdom of this world, but those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the Most High who became the Most Low, the one with all authority and power who became nothing and served us as people by becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And now he calls us to go and do likewise as we celebrate this meal, to go and be a people who in our lives exhibit the same radical sacrifice and love for others and desire to glorify God that he exhibited in his life. And so let's pray as we come now uh, to prepare ourselves to come to this table. Lord Jesus, uh, it is hard to not read that passage and to immediately cower under the weight of it, to not feel uh, as if it is a mountain that is too high for us to climb, to even consider what it would look like for us to begin to make steps towards obedience it would be easy to just to hear these words and to slough them off and to think that, that, that that's just too much and to not uh, take seriously the truth of what you call us to, that if we're ever going to be wise, we have to live our lives according to reality. We have to be in touch with reality or else we're destined to live uh, foolish lives uh, that rob us of the joy and the meaning and the purpose that you so long to give us. Lord Jesus, you have told us it is the thief. It is the thief that you are not the one wanting to steal from us. It is the thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy. You have come, even in what Paul calls us to, you have come to lead us into life and life abundantly. Oh, but we need you. We, we, we need you to come and work on our hearts because we would say in response to that statement, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And so come now as we gather around this table, as we sing these songs, would you come and would you uh, increase our faith? Would you heal us of our unbelief that we might uh, be faithful to bear fruit that would glorify you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we want to make sure to invite you tomorrow night. Celebrate with us at 530. If you have any questions, you can call the church office tomorrow. We'll be here. Uh, and please, please come back and celebrate with us. Now. Uh, my prayer for you, my prayer for my family, uh, but also for you, is that over the next couple of days that, that we have great joy and celebration at the coming of, the Jesus, coming of Jesus into the world as our Savior. But also, see, coupled with that, not only joy at His coming, but also longing uh, and expectation and waiting and hoping for the day when He will come again to finally finish what He has begun and to make all things new and to bring the new heavens and the new earth in which there will be no more pain, no more dying, no more mourning, no more crying. Uh, but the older things will pass away. So that's the, dual, that's the dual reality. And so as we wait, in the meantime, as we take up our cross and follow him, then the promise of, of our waiting on him to come again is that even now as he is in heaven, he has sent the Spirit, and by the Spirit he is with us, and promises to go with us and to bless us and to care for us. Uh, so we need not fear anything. That's the promise of the benediction. So receive it by faith. 
and, and, and may this be the song of the Father that you hear sung over you over the next few days as you celebrate the coming of the Son into the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.